Welcome to the Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Freddy, Digital Marketing Manager for Corporate Communications. As Hartford Steam Boiler approaches its 150th anniversary in 2016, we're commemorating the Sultana Steamboat Disaster that occurred 150 years ago on April 27, 1865. The explosion of three of the ship's four boilers and the tragedy that ensued is one of the pivotal events that motivated our founders to start HSB with the mission of preventing accidents like this in the future. The 376-person capacity vessel was carrying 2,400 passengers. The majority were Union soldiers just released from Confederate prisoner of war camps in Andersonville and Cahaba, and they were finally going home. More than 1,700 men, women, and children died on the Sultana. It remains America's largest maritime disaster, greater than the legendary sinking of the Titanic. But because of the timing and circumstances at the end of the Civil War, just a week after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln and a day after the shooting of his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, the Sultana disaster went largely unreported in the media and was unrecognized by a country weary of war and numbed by the incomprehensibly large loss of life during the war. Through the years, the rallying cry of Remember the Sultana was honored first by the National Sultana Survivors Association and then carried on by the Sultana Descendants Association. Scholars and authors such as Jerry O. Potter and Gene Saliker and the town of Marion, Arkansas, which is the home of the Sultana Museum. Now, the production team of Mark and Mike Marshall, Sean Astin, and Jim Michaels are in the final stages of completing their documentary called Remember the Sultana in hopes that the film will help to establish the Sultana disaster's rightful place in U.S. history. Hartford Steam Boiler is proud to be a corporate sponsor of this documentary since the event plays an integral part in our heritage and company's founding mission. Remember the Sultana is an important message for Harvard Steam Boiler because we never, ever forgot. April 23rd through the 25th, 2015, in Marion, Arkansas and Memphis, Tennessee, the 150th anniversary of the Sultana sinking was commemorated. Harford Steam Boiler was present to document the events, and the inaugural episode of our podcast features a lecture given by Memphis lawyer Jerry O. Potter, the author of the seminal book, The Sultana Tragedy, America's Greatest Maritime Disaster, published by Pelican in 1992. Jerry continues to be one of the primary advocates and authorities on the Sultana. This talk, titled The Search for the Sultana, was given at the Marian United Methodist Church on Friday, April 24, 2015, and is a fascinating and heartfelt account of how Jerry came to learn about the Sultana, his research, and a vivid recounting of the events that took place 150 years ago. We hope you enjoy the first episode in this series and subscribe to and share this podcast. Please follow our blog and YouTube channel for more of our coverage of the Sultana. Thank you. Uh I'm amazed how many people are here. Uh, I know that y'all thought Gene Saliker was going to be talking now instead of me. That's the only reason you came. Uh, Gene is truly the Sultana expert. I, I'm the uh, V-team uh, expert on the Sultana. I want to kind of talk to you about my journey. Uh, I'm going to talk about two things. First, I'm going to talk to you about uh, how I got involved in the Sultana. Uh, and then I want to talk to you about the real story of the Sultana. But in 1978, I was 27 years old. I had dark brown hair. I had been practicing law uh, for two years. In fact, today is my, my 39th anniversary of being a licensed lawyer in Tennessee. That's a miracle because my mother told my brother and I when we were living in the country of only Tennessee with a two-holer out back that we could be anything we wanted to be when we grew up, but we couldn't be lawyers or politicians. <laughs> my brother's an elected judge. In 1978, I was walking through the National Bank of Commerce in downtown Memphis, and there was an art display in the lobby. And as I was walking past the lobby or the art display, there was one particular painting that captured my attention. It was a painting of a burning steamboat at night. So I walked up to it, I looked at it, and all about the burning steamboat at night, there were heads out in the water struggling to survive. 
And I looked up at the nameplate on the painting, and it said the burning of the Saltana, April 27, 1865. That was my first encounter with the Saltana. I had never heard of it. And uh, I had been a history major at the University of Tennessee at Martin. I have loved the Civil War since I was, uh, since my grandfather first told me about the Civil War and our ancestors who wore gray and rode with Forrest. Um, so I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> I had never heard of it. And I thought I knew everything about the history of the Civil War in West Tennessee. I had written articles on the forest. I got one published when I was in college on the first West Tennessee raid of Nathan Bedford Forest. and was a research historian for TVA between uh, college and law school. And I was amazed. Uh, I was intrigued by the painting. So I went to the, uh, to the library a few days later and started reading uh, the newspaper accounts from, uh, of the Sultana from uh, the Memphis Argus and the Memphis Daily Bulletin. And I was amazed because the article said that 1,200 people had died on the Sultana. And most of them were Union soldiers who had just gotten out of Andersonville and Cahama. And I guess I was first captured by the magnitude of the disaster. And then I was... Uh, really intrigued why I had never heard of the Town and this horrible tragedy that occurred uh, virtually nine miles from my office in Memphis. So little did I realize uh, when I was looking at that painting that 37 years later I would be standing in front of a tremendous number of people talking about the Town. You know, there are a lot of uh, awards and things on my walls and on my office. And I've always said that a man's measure is not by what's on his walls. And I, I'm, I'm blessed that I've accomplished a lot. But really, this journey that I have been on has been probably the, one of the greatest blessings of my life. Because um, it became an obsession. Initially, what I was going to do was write a short historical article on this horrible disaster. I, you know, found uh, and got a copy of Transport uh, to Disaster by James uh, Elliott. I read it, and, but it really didn't, you know, it told me some, some facts about the story. So I started writing an article. And I went to the uh, official records of War of the Rebellion, all the newspapers, and uh, I finished the article. And it was really too long to, to uh, get published as a historical article in a, some historic journal, but it was too short for a book. About that time, I started getting intrigued about finding the wreckage. Um, and there's no mention of the search in my book because while I'm 90% certain I know where the wreckage is, I'm not 100%. The only way you would be 100% certain if you could uncover the wreckage, and that would cost millions. Um, but I got in, uh, obsessed about finding the wreckage and got all the maps from the Corps of Engineers and from the, from the uh, Library of Congress, um, and I read the eyewitness accounts and I pretty well plotted on a present-day map where I thought the wreckage was. And then I met a farmer, uh, Sam Oliver. He and his family were farming the area where, where I thought the boat was, wreckage was. So I could never find him. And one day I was driving down uh, by Dacus Lake and a truck passed me that said, uh, Dear Mount Oliver and Son. So I turned around, chased him, and stopped, stopped him, and he was Sam Oliver. And I had all my maps, and, uh, and I showed him where I thought the boat, the wreckage. I first told him I wasn't crazy, and told him why I was there. <laughs> uh, he later was convinced I was crazy, you know, probably right. And I, I, I told him I thought the wreck of the Sultana was where I had placed the X on the present day map. And he said, well, about 200 yards north of where you put the X, we've, we have found a lot of pieces of metal. 
So we, uh, that started uh, a search. I borrowed a metal detector, and the first, I was out there with my two children and my wife, and I had like a, you know, I had done some uh, archaeology work in college, so I, I didn't have a shovel, because you don't want to use a shovel in an you know, archaeological dig. And the first piece of metal I came across was a shaker that was about six feet long, buried in the ground at that angle. And it took me almost all day to uncover it. And we found, uh, Sam and I found tons of riverboat parts. Um, and we had an expert from uh, Louisiana that brought a magnetometer, and we got strong readings over additional buried uh, metal. And so we pretty well decided where the boat was, and we started drilling, and we were hitting charred wood and coal fragments at about 30 feet. And then Mr. Dearmont Oliver died, and so that kind of ended, uh, ended our search. And while we were searching, uh, a man, a man by the name of Clive Cussler, the famous author. I mean, he you know, he turns out more books than uh, Newsweek. Uh, he was on a book tour and came to Memphis and heard that I was uh, looking for the Sultana. So he came later with a, a actually he was the first one that brought a magnetometer, and uh, we went over to the site. Uh, uh, Clive Cussler and I, nice guy, very, very nice guy. And we were, uh, we got strong hits uh, with the mag, and uh, he said, you know, you found, we found the Sultana. Well, I wasn't convinced we had found the Sultana. And then about July 4th, 1982, uh, Mr. Cussler released to the wire service that he and I had found the Sultana. And I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, we had helicopters, news helicopters landing in the field. The farmer was mad. Uh, there were two or three news uh, uh, vans at my house. I was actually out of town, so my neighbors thought I had been arrested for something. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it was just chaotic. Uh, and probably that's when... Uh, it became, you know, we started getting more exposure about the Sultana. I wasn't happy about it at the time because I wasn't prepared to admit uh, that I had found anything, let alone the Sultana. Uh, later that summer, um, I, uh, I really got famous. Uh, I got in People Magazine with Dolly Parton. <laughs> Of all my accomplishments, uh, I think this is probably the greatest. <laughs> but there was an article in People magazine about uh, my search for the Sultana. And through that publicity, I started getting a lot of letters and information. Uh, and then um, that summer, later that summer, my wife and I were, were in Baltimore at a young lawyer's convention. And I decided, we decided, I don't decide anything, she decided to go to Washington, because I'd never been, and when we got there, I said, well, let's go by the National Archives uh, to see if they have anything on the Town. So I walked in there and went to the old Army and Navy records, and um, met a man by the name of Mike Music uh, that had ties with Memphis and knew the story, knew about the Town. And I said, you know, do you have anything on the Town? He said, yeah, we do. Uh, go down the, the main reading room and I'll uh, send some materials. And so about 30 minutes later, he brought a box. And it had original, the original trial transcript of the court-martial of Frederick Speed. There were, comp there were original documents of all the three commissions that had investigated the disaster. There were original letters signed by A. Lincoln, and I just went, I mean, I hit the mother load. I, was, I wasn't in heaven, preacher, but I was pretty close. Uh, and I give it all credit to the good Lord because he connected me with the right man. Uh, so, and I told, the, um, uh, told Mike that I'd like to have a copy of all this. Uh, and my wife was, you know, very understanding. It was several hundred dollars. I'm sure I don't remember. Uh, 
But from that moment on, I decided that I was going to write a book. And, uh, you know, I kept working on it. You know, I was very busy as a father and a husband and uh, developing my law practice. So I would work on it at lunch, uh, at night. Uh, and it took me from 1978, and the book came out in 1992. It took me that long to research it because I'm a researcher. I love to research, and um, I researched uh, Reuben Hatch for years. I drove all the way to uh, Springfield, Illinois, looking for stuff uh, on Reuben Hatch. Found a little, uh, some stuff. I, I, Pam's going to find me a photograph of it. So, um, but then in I think it was nineteen, well before. 1988, I had met a reporter here in Memphis by the name of Fred Brown, and I had actually taken him to the site, and he uh, participated in the search, and he kind of got obsessed with the story, and then he moved to Knoxville. It's amazing how the good Lord connects the dots. And I think it was through Fred Brown that uh, Norman and, uh, you know, the the association was started because Fred had published an article and Fred called me and said they're going to have a reunion, uh, the Sultana reunion, around April 27, uh, 1988. And so I got on an airplane and flew up there and met some just incredible people. And it has just been an incredible journey. And you know, I, I truly got obsessed uh, with, the, uh, with the story. Initially, I was uh, really captivated by the magnitude of the disaster uh, and uh, the fact that there were, at that time it was reported, 1,200 people had died. But as I started researching it, the numbers started taking on names. And then the names started taking on photographs when people would send me photographs of Pleasant Keeble, John Keeble, uh, J.C. Ely, John Clark Ely. Then I started meeting children of some of the survivors. And I started hearing the secondhand stories from the soldiers. Uh, then I started, of course, I met a lot of you. and and. Suddenly, you know, that number became individuals. Individuals that I just became obsessed to tell their story. Because the greatest, I don't know how to, what word would be proper. Uh, the saddest part of this story is the fact that so few people know about it. And to see all of these people in this church, this beautiful church, is a dream come true, a prayer answered for me. Because uh, it has never been about money. You know, as I said last night, I don't know how many hundreds of books I have given away to every library, every school kid. Uh, and, you know, I, I have them in my office, and I give them to lawyers and to clients and friends and just people I don't know that. Uh, indicated they have an interest in Saltana or they would like to know about it. Because my passion has always been that these men will not be forgotten. That they will be remembered. And when I got into the story and into especially reading the trial transcript and the testimony from the three commissions um, I looked at it both from the standpoint of a historian, because I do consider myself a historian, first and foremost. I believe in footnotes, and I think my footnote, my book has like 600 footnotes. Uh, but I'm also a trial lawyer. So I looked at the disaster and as both from the standpoint of a historian and a standpoint of a trial lawyer. And to me, the real story is not the fact the boat exploded north of Memphis. That was not unusual. Life expectancy of a steamboat in this particular era 
was probably four to five years. So it was not unusual for steamboats to explode, to burn, to hit a snag. But what was so unusual about this and what separates this disaster from any other disaster in American history is the fact there were 2,500 people on a steamboat designed to carry 376. Now that of, in, of itself would be was separated from any other event in history. But what separates this disaster even more from any other event is the fact that the vast majority of those 2,500 people on that boat designed to carry only 376 passengers, they were Union soldiers who were going home after the war and they had just gotten out of Andersonville and Cahaba prisons. To me, the fact the war was over and they were going home and they died is what this story is all about. And what haunted me initially was why were so many people loaded on one boat? Now I could spend uh, two hours talking about that, but I'm not because I, uh, Roz will grab a hook and hook me. But let's talk about the story, I hope. The fact, you know, let's, fact one, the war was over. Had just ended uh, a couple of weeks before the Sultana. When the war ended, there were about 5,500 Union soldiers, prisoners of war, at Camp Fist, uh, Mississippi, three miles outside of Vicksburg. Uh, they were still prisoners, still under the official control of the Confederate Army, but they were actually under the control of the Union Army that was operating uh, Camp Fisk. This is the third uh, important fact of the story, the Town. I found this photograph at the Mercantile uh, Museum in St. Louis. This is the first of the two known photographs of Sultana. This is a uh, panoramic shot of the uh, riverfront at St. Louis, and in the center is the Sultana. And the Sultana was 260 feet long. It had been built in 1863. Uh, it had a legal carrying capacity of 376 passengers. And in April of 1865, it was under the command of J. Cash Mason, who was, uh, a, he and some other men had bought the Sultana in 1864 for a total of $80,000. He had been a three-eighth interest, or had owned a three-eighth interest at that time when uh, the boat was purchased. In April of 1865, he only owned a 1 16th interest in the boat. He had sold most of his other uh, interests to uh, William J. Kimrell, the first clerk of the Sultana. My theory is this man was in financial trouble because there is evidence and testimony that everything that he owned in the world was tied up in that 1 16th interest in the Sultana. The war was over. Uh, the Sultana had enjoyed a very lucrative uh, business in transporting material and men for the Union Army during the war. They'd made a lot of money. But the war was over. He knew that the contracts that he, had, he and his boat had enjoyed was at an end. So he was desperate, determined to get as many passengers and, and material uh, to carry upriver um, um, in April of 1865. He arrived going downriver in mid-April, and when he docked, when the Sultana docked at Vicksburg, he met Lieutenant Colonel Reuben B. Hatch, the chief quartermaster for the Department of Mississippi. I became obsessed with this man. I researched him for years. And what I found that Reuben Hatch met Mason at the dock at Vicksburg. And Hatch, in my opinion, the evidence is pretty strong, took a bribe from Mason 
to ensure that Mason on his upriver trip would get a very large load of prisoners to carry up to Cairo. And as I researched Reuben Hatch uh, and the transcript and all the testimony, it was clear that there was something going on with Reuben Hatch. He was too much involved in too many meetings, too, too many important meetings. And so I went back in time to uh, 1862 when Reuben Hatch was a captain and was an assistant quartermaster at Cairo. Reuben Hatch was caught red-handed stealing from the governor. The evidence which I've reviewed was overwhelming. They even found uh, his illegal, or his book showing his illegal profit that he had tried to throw into the river but didn't quite make it into the river. They had tremendous evidence of his guilt. Uh, General Grant had him arrested, ordered that he be court-martialed, but he was never court-martialed. The reason he wasn't court-martialed because of this man, O.M. Hatch. The brother of Reuben Hatch. O.M. Hatch was the Secretary of State for the state of Illinois and was also a very close friend uh, of another man from Springfield, Illinois. This is a photograph of Abraham Lincoln when he was visiting uh, General McClellan early in the war. Three men to the left, from the left, is a tall man standing with a light-colored top hat. That is O.M. Hatch. Lincoln and O.M. Hatch were that close. They were both from the Springfield area. And it was O.M. Hatch who sent a letter to Abraham Lincoln after his brother had been arrested asking Lincoln to intervene and to help Reuben Hatch. And the governor of the state of Illinois signed that letter along with uh, O.M. Hatch. And Lincoln sent an endorsement with that letter to an adjutant general in the Union Army. And he said, the within is signed by our Illinois governor, secretary of state, O.M. Hatch, and the state auditor, all good and true men, and this is important, I also personally know Captain J. or R.B. Hatch and never before heard anything against his character if the judge advocate has the means of doing so, I will thank him for giving me his opinion of this case. Now when the president writes somebody and says that, you know exactly what the president wants. Lincoln went as far as having a civilian commission to, to investigate the charges against Reuben Hatch. And two of the three commissioners were from the state of Illinois. It's not going to surprise y'all that the three commissioners found that Reuben Hatch was nothing more than an honest man. Let's fast forward to January of 1865. Reuben Hatch appears before an, uh, an investigating commission or a testing commission uh, to be tested on the rules and regulations that, that a, uh, an assistant quartermaster is required to know. Uh, and Reuben Hatch thought at first it was not going to be very involved. In fact, he wrote his brother and said, please send me a letter about all the good things I've done. I'm paraphrasing. All the good things I've done and help raising, you know, troops and my tremendous duty during the war. And get the governor on, by the way. Get the governor to sign it because I think it will help when I go before the board. And he didn't even have a uniform because he had lost the uniform, his uniform the prior August, so he came in civilian clothing. Well, it wasn't quite what he thought. The board tested him, and this is what they're finding. Of the 60 officers who had appeared before this board, no more than one or two can compare with Captain Hatch in degree of deficiency. His accounting deficiency in view of his long period of service must be ascribed either to culpable negligence or to incapacity. In either case, he is totally unfit to discharge the duties of an assistant quartermaster. That was in January of 1865. Lincoln and Grant actually, in January of 1865, tried to get Reuben Hatch promoted from lieutenant colonel to full colonel and appointed uh, a chief quartermaster for the Department of the Gulf, but nothing was ever done on that. It's interesting that, that Grant would participate in that type of action because in Cairo in 1862, 
Grant accused Reuben Hatch of spreading the rumors of his drinking, and Grant said that Reuben Hatch was somewhat of a sot himself. But for whatever, whatever reason, uh, he was not promoted to the chief quartermaster for the Department of the Guff. Instead, 10 days after this was written, he was appointed chief quartermaster for the Department of Mississippi and sent to Vicksburg. The first character is in place. Very important. Because it was Reuben Hatch who met Mason when the boat was going downriver, stopped at Vicksburg. Reuben Hatch promised Mason a large load of prisoners for his upriver trip. The promise has been made. The bribe has been paid. The boat leaves Vicksburg, steams downriver, then leaves New Orleans about April 21st. And as the boat is coming back upriver, the final prisoner exchange is finally worked out. And it's determined that the 5,500 prisoners remaining at Camp Fisk would be sent upriver to Camp Chase, Ohio, where they were to be mustered out of the Army. General Dana, the commander for the Department of Mississippi, orders that a thousand prisoners be placed on each steamboat coming upriver. Captain Frederick Speed. Now, for a few moments, we're going to lift the veil of time and we're going to go back 150 years ago, last night, April 23rd, 1865. Frederick Speed is a young um, captain from Maine. Uh, he had volunteered to be in charge of the prisoner exchange at Vicksburg. Uh, and on the evening of April 22nd, the Henry Ames, the second boat on the right, arrives at Vicksburg. Speed will place 1,300 prisoners on the Henry Ames, and it goes north. 5,500 men at the program. 1,300 go on the Henry Ames. Shortly after the Henry Ames leaves, on April 23rd, the um, Olive Branch arrives. Speed will place 700 prisoners on the Olive Branch. It goes north. 5,500 men, 2,000 have left. 1,000 men to be placed on each steamboat, according to the general. The Sultana arrives about 8.45 on April 23rd, 1865. 150 years ago last night. When the boat arrives, uh, the chief engineer goes into Vicksburg, finds R.G. Taylor, a local boiler maker, but, and to come aboard the Sultana to look at a leaking boiler. And finally, uh, Taylor agrees to put a very small patch, very small thin patch over the leaking boiler, buckled area. And he would work all through the night and into the day of April 24th. 150 years ago today, if we were at Vicksburg, standing at the waterfront, at this particular time, we would hear hammering around the boiler area. That's R.G. Taylor hammering on the boiler to do the temporary <coughs> patch. Um, and then, while that is going on, Captain Mason goes in to Vicksburg, and guess who he meets with first? Reuben Hatch. And then he meets Captain Frederick Speed. First meeting last night between Speed and Mason. Speed tells Mason, I only have the records prepared for about 300 prisoners. Mason is very upset because he's already been promised a large load of prisoners for his upriver trip. Speed said, you know, it's going to take me probably until April 27th to get all the paperwork for the remaining prisoners at the parole. <coughs> Mason doesn't like that. He goes to the office of General Morgan L. Smith, who's another crook, but I don't have time to talk about him. <laughs> Just take my word for it. And it was at the office of General Smith last night 
that a critical meeting occurred because Captain George Williams had arrived back in Vicksburg last night. He meets with Mason in Morgan's, Morgan L. Smith's office. George Williams, Captain George Williams. It's important that he's a captain because he's a, he was a West Point graduate, class of 1852. He had been in the military since graduating from West Point and he was still a captain. Now that tells you a lot about George Williams. His classmate, Phil Sheraton, we all know what he did. And he was still a captain. So I said, I went back into time again. What I found that George Williams was, in 1864, was the uh, commandant of the Irvin Block Prison in Memphis, Tennessee. And the military made a surprise inspection of the prison and there were like 28 prisoners chained in the basement that was wet, no facilities, not allowed to leave, and the conditions were so horrible, he was kicked out, he was about to be kicked out of the military for gross dereliction of duty and cruelty to prisoners. The Judge Advocate General of the United States Army was ready to kick him out, but then he got a letter signed U.S. Grant saying that George Williams was an honorable officer, and please don't do that. He's been served, had just in tremendous service during the war. He was allowed to re-enter the Army, or not be kicked out of the Army, and sent to Vicksburg. Second character now in place. It was this officer last night who told Mason that the paperwork did not need to be prepared in advance of placing the men on the Sultana. They could be placed on the Sultana tomorrow, which is today, and the paperwork could be prepared after the boat left. Mason left that off meeting and told his clerk, or his agent, there would be no problem in getting all the prisoners he wanted today. Last night there was another meeting the most important meeting of the whole story. Captain Williams, Captain Frederick Speed met in the room of Reuben Hatch. And at first, Speed said, look, I only have the paperwork of 300 men ready. And Williams tried to convince him not to do the paperwork in advance. And finally, at that meeting, Frederick Speed said, okay, we'll ship all the men on tomorrow on the Sultan. Speed tells Dana that all the remaining prisoners are to be shipped on the Sultana. Dana asked him, how many prisoners are there? Remember, 2,000 had been taken. 5,500 had been at the prison, or at the parole camp. Speed says, well, there are 13 to 1,400 prisoners remaining. They can all go on the Sultan. Next morning, today, early this morning, 150 years ago, Reuben Hatch appears at the room of Captain Speed, and they talk about 35 minutes, even before Speed had had an opportunity to get dressed, and Speed and the roommate later testified that it was agreed that all the remaining prisoners would be shipped that day on Sultana. Today, 150 years ago, early this morning, Frederick Speed and George Williams rode by train to Camp Fisk. It was decided that Speed would remain at the parole camp and supervise the placement of the men on the trains to be sent into Vicksburg. It was also decided that George Williams would ride on the first train and count the men as they boarded the boat, keep track of the number of men that were being loaded on the boat. He did that. George Williams counted about 570 men was on the first train load and by the time the men from the first train joined the men that were already on the boat, there was 968 soldiers 
on a boat designed to carry 376. It was at, after this first trainload of men boarded the boat that Captain William Kearns, one of the, the quartermaster in charge of river transportation, decided there's too many men being placed on this boat. And he tried to get men placed on the Lady Gay that arrived shortly today, 150 years ago, uh, but it was that he couldn't. He was accused of taking bribes. Uh, it's interesting that this morning, one of Hatch's lieutenants, assistant quartermaster by the name of Lieutenant Tillinghast, uh, told George Williams that Frederick Speed was taking a bribe. In the testimony, it was clear that the only officer that was taking a bribe, other than maybe Reuben Hatch, was Lieutenant Tillinghast. He had been bribed by several steamboats, the testimony was. So Williams get up, gets upset. He thinks that Speed is taking a bribe, and he's really determined that all the men are going to be placed on the one boat, the Sultana. Final trainload of men. Williams is at the waterfront. He counts approximately 800 men. Now, the final train load that arrived in about a couple of hours from now at Vicksburg had aboard the Kentucky Soldiers and the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. So shortly, they're going to be boarding the boat. One problem. There weren't two trains. There were three trains. Around 2 o'clock, well... Speed was at lunch, and he never counted the men, didn't supervise their placement on the second train. And while Williams was at lunch, or at the uh, General Dana's headquarters, and not at the riverfront, the second, a second train load arrived. Well, Williams estimated 1,866 men for a boat designed to carry 376. But again, he didn't count. Speed didn't realize there were three trains. Williams didn't realize there were three trains. And while they estimated 400 men was on that second train, there may have been more. So instead of being 1,866, it was probably 2,266. But in reality, it was more than that. It was probably closer to 2,400. The, the, before the last train load arrived, even the medical director for the department went aboard the Sultana. It was so crowded, he took off the sick and turned some of the people coming from the hospital around, sent them back to the hospital, saved their lives. George Williams, Captain Kearns, tried to get the men divided on another steamboat that had arrived, um, the Pauline Carroll, this afternoon, beside the Sultana. There was, a, again, they wanted a portion of the prisoners. Kearns tried to get the men placed on the, the Pauline Carroll. Didn't happen. All the men, according to Williams, had to be placed on the Sultana, he went aboard the Sultana, said, no, I've been on board, there is plenty of room, they can all go comfortably. <laughs> the other two steamboats, the Lady Gay and Pauline Carroll, went north, upriver with 17 passengers. Captain William Freisner, he was the officer in charge of the military guard on the Sultana. You remember what William said? They can all go comfortably. The whole boat, this is what Freisner said, the whole boat was crowded, overcrowded, on the boiler deck forward of the cabin. The men were so crowded they could not well lie down, had to set up against the rack, some of them. The hurricane deck was also crowded. It was horrible. My hero. Another one of my heroes. Ann Ames. She had come to Vicksburg to, t to nurse Harvey, her husband, back, who was a military officer at uh, Vicksburg. Uh, Miss Helen has told me the story. I've read the story. This was an incredible lady because when a movie is made of Sultana, and it will be made, she's going to be one of the main characters. She had been from England originally. First husband was an English sea captain, went, was, uh, died when his boat went down, he drowned. 
She married a second English sea captain. She was on his boat when he went down. She survived. He died. She moved to Wisconsin, probably thinking that's about as far as from the ocean as she can get. She marries Harvey, a pump maker, I think. He goes to the Army, sent to Vicksburg. She goes to Vicksburg with her child, Belle, to nurse uh, Harvey back. They get on the Sultana today. And Anne is very uncomfortable because of the crowded conditions. Great fear was felt. This is her testimony at one of the commissions. Great fear was felt by everyone on the Sultana on account of the large number of passengers and the boat being top-heavy. In fact, the first clerk, part owner, William, Gate, William J. Gamrell, talked to Ann and showed Ann that additional supports were being placed between the decks that sagged to keep them from collapsing from the weight of the prisoners. She was afraid. He had to be afraid too. William J. Gamrell. This is what he said when boat left shortly after the boat left Vicksburg tonight. And if we arrived safe at Cairo, it would be the greatest trip ever made on the western waters as there were more people on board than were ever carried on one boat on the Mississippi River. He stated there were over were 2,400 soldiers, 100 civilian passengers, and a crew of 80, and all over 2,500 on a boat designed to carry 376 passengers. Jake Hass Mason, he knew he had too many men on that boat. But the military was paying $5 per, per enlisted man, $10 per officer. Greed overcame his experience, his good judgment. And when the boat arrived in Memphis, even he he, even he was concerned. He told Lieutenant Joseph Taylor Elliott with the 124th Ohio or Indiana Infantry, he would give all the interest he had in the boat, that 116th interest, if it was safely landed in Cairo. He knew he had put at risk the lives of his passengers. And he did. Sultana, we've seen this photograph. You know, when I look at that photograph, you know, I wish I could zoom in and see the individual faces and be able to identify who they were. Because that photograph is not only the photograph of a grossly overloaded boat, but that's also the last photograph of most of the men that you see on those decks. They only had a few hours to live. But they weren't afraid. They didn't like how crowded the conditions were. But they were going home. They had touched the elephant. They had survived Andersonville and Cahaba. And all they could think about, we were all talking about home and friends and the many good things we would have to eat. We consoled ourselves, this is so important, that we had lived through, all, through it all and now we're in the land of free. We had no thought but that we would be at home in a few days feasting with our loved ones once more. That's all they wanted. They had written their loved ones were coming home. My hero, John Clark Ely, another one of my heroes. John Clark Ely, 115th Ohio. Um, he had been promoted from sergeant to lieutenant while he was at Andersonville. He had been captured near Laverne, Tennessee on December 5th. 1864, uh, on, this is his diary, entry for Christmas Day. You can see what it says. But what really broke my heart was when I read, will another Christmas find us again among friends and loved ones? See, when I go to the National Cemetery and I see those headstones, I, you know, it's like, man, I wish I knew your story. I do know the story of John Clark Ely. I've read his diary. I've read his thoughts. How he longed to be with his wife and four kids. And how he was looking forward to, to you know, getting out of the army. And then he's captured the day after he turned 39. And he wrote that 
And then one day I was at the National Cemetery and I found this headstone, J.C. Ely, Illinois. And I went into the, the office and it was uh, J.C. Ely, 115th Illinois, died April 28, 1865, here at Memphis. Now research, of course, 115th Illinois was not in this area at that time. And when we go out there Sunday, you'll see a new headstone with the right full name, his rank. And what you will also see, I found this in a newspaper from Memphis, a funeral of the 11, of 11. Yes, a funeral of 11 noble dead was to be seen yesterday on the way to the last earthly dying place. Not drawn in 11 different hearses followed by Great many carriages filled with mourning and sobbing friends enclosed and finally are finally trimmed in beautiful coffins, but in rough coffins piled on one another in a rough government wagon drawn by 11 horses through the busy streets, nobody taking any notice whatsoever. Such was the scene we witnessed yesterday as 11 dead soldiers were being hauled away to be buried. Such is one of the horrible features of this sad war. These noble men who died in the service of their country have friends who love them like ourselves. But the fortunes of war have brought them to their deaths while far, far away from their loved ones. This is but a drop in the vast ocean of suffering that this cruel war has caused, and by far not the worst. That kind of sums up the story of the Sultana. But what's different is we now know why the men died within sight of Memphis. It wasn't because of the war. The war was over. It was because of greed, corruption, gross stupidity, and just military officers, they didn't care. And probably... You go out there and you see that. And that is what bothers me the most. We'll never know who's buried in those graves. We'll never know their stories. Those men deserved a better monument than that. And what we are all doing today, what Marion, City of Marion is doing, what Mark and Mike uh, are doing, will give them a better monument than that. That is my passion. And that's why I've spent 37 years on this journey, is so that those men will have a better monument than what we see. Thank you. This podcast was made possible by the support of Harford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company, 2015.